Welcome to the Dublin Bible Talks, midweek Bible talks for workers in Dublin. I'm Cameron Jones. How would you introduce Jesus to a friend or colleague? Today we look at how a close colleague of those who knew Jesus personally began his biography of Jesus. What did Mark think was important for people to know as they encountered Jesus for the first time? And please consider joining us live on Wednesdays from your workplace, 1pm Dublin time on Zoom. It's a simple way of identifying as a Christian in your workplace. Simply use the link bit.ly slash Dublin Bible Talks. That's bit.ly slash Dublin Bible Talks. How would you introduce a friend to Jesus? What would you say? What would you emphasise? As we begin this little book called Mark, that in most Bibles is only about 50 or 55 pages long, Mark introduces us to Jesus. Mark is probably the earliest biography that we have, probably written by John Mark, a companion of both Peter and Paul, and he himself working for uh, working as a Christian missionary. At many points, it seems that Mark has got his information in this account from Peter himself. There are certain scenes that seem to be Peter's memories of these events. Perhaps it's written for Christians in Rome in the early 60s, a time in which it was not easy to be a follower of Jesus but also a time in which there were still people alive who knew Jesus. People could go and check the details of Mark's account with the people who were actually there at the time because they were still living. Look at how Mark begins. He actually uses that word, doesn't he? Verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's the introduction to this account. Let's have a look together quickly at those introductory words and what they mean. First, the word gospel. It's a word that means news. Like many words, it has become Christian jargon, but it was originally a very ordinary word, not a special Christian or even a very religious word. Mark has news to tell. This is the news. It's news that at the time of Mark... Uh, writing that down, it's already spread all around the Mediterranean world. It's caused disturbances in many cities of the Roman Empire. News that has brought people from all kinds of backgrounds. Radically, it's taken both Jews and Greeks. It's taken slaves and free people. It's taken men and women equally into a new community. A community who believe this news. And the news is still being spread today. That's what I'm doing right now. And it's happening in countries still all over the world. And Mark reminds us that this is news about Jesus. And it's very important to be clear about this. This Christianity is not some new moral code that is spreading throughout the Roman Empire and still needs to spread throughout the world today. No, it's not just a moral code. We Christians are not people who are defined by our stand on a particular moral issue, although we might take stands on a moral issue. That's not the main driving force behind what it is to be a Christian. And it's ni- neither is it a new organisation that is simply interested in gathering new members 
It's not like Christians are on a membership drive. Christians are not people who have joined an organisation. What has had the effects around the world? What is it that has had a, a, its effect on Christian people? Is news about a person, a person named Jesus. And you'll notice there that Mark calls him Jesus Christ. Christ is not a surname. It's not like there was Mary Christ and Joseph Christ and they had a son, Jesus Christ. No, the word Christ is a title. Jesus is the Christ, the King. And in the following pages in Mark, we are told the things that Jesus said and did until we reach the climax in chapter 8, verse 29, when Jesus says to his followers, Who do you say that I am? And it is Peter who replies, You are the Christ. One of the things that Mark does as he writes is that he's recording what Jesus did and said that made Peter reach that conclusion, and also what that conclusion means. It's certainly one of the reasons that Mark wrote this little book. Now notice that Mark says one other thing about Jesus. He says, Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. Mark takes us in his account of Jesus' life right through to the day that Jesus died on the cross. On that day, there was a man there. He was a Roman soldier, a man who watched Jesus die. And he is going to say in chapter 15, verse 39 of this biography of Jesus, that Roman soldier stood at the foot of the cross and he said, truly, this man was the son of God. Now, what did that mean? Is it true? Can you, can your colleagues, come to the same conclusion as the soldier came to? Well, we're going to read Mark's book in order to answer those kinds of questions, because that's why it's been written. Now, one more thing. Notice the word beginning. This book is the beginning of the gospel. Not because there's any more to add to it than he records, but because the news, the proclamation, is something that is still going on. The message is still spreading, and the powerful impact it's having is still occurring in the world. Now, this process began with what Mark is about to record. It is the nature of Christianity that we need to understand its beginning. Because Christianity is not fundamentally about things that God is doing in our day. Christianity is not centrally about what God is doing today in your life or in my life, although we praise him for what he is doing. No, Christianity is the news about the events that Mark is recording for us. News about Jesus, the King, the Son of God, the news recorded here in this little book. So the title gives us some idea about what is coming. But to understand Mark's account of the beginning of the gospel, we need to listen to him and let him tell us how the beginning began. In the opening sentences, he tells us it all began in a wilderness. Look down to verse 3. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And then in verse 4, we find a man 
named John baptizing. And where is he? Well, he's in the wilderness. And a little bit later in verses 12 and 13, we hear about Jesus in the wilderness. Mark 1 verse 12. At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and he was there in the wilderness for 40 days. He uses that word wilderness or desert twice. Mark is bringing our attention to the wilderness to show us where things began. Why? Well, he's going to tell us. He's going to tell us of danger in the wilderness, of water in the wilderness, of a substitute in the wilderness, and they need to turn around in the wilderness. Danger in the wilderness, water in the wilderness, a substitute in the wilderness, and they need to turn around in the wilderness. Have a look at verses 3 and 4 and verses 12 and 13 again. When we're thinking about the desert, when we're thinking about the wilderness, have you ever been in the desert? I've been in the desert a number of times in Australia, and it is a very dangerous place. What is it that's dangerous in the desert? Uh, maybe I'll share with you in the WhatsApp group, I've got a photograph of what is called the dig tree. It's at a place called Cooper's Creek, just on the, on the, uh, at the edge of a number of different deserts in Australia. The dig tea was tree was where a group of people who were trying to make their way across Australia for the very first time, where they stopped and they made a camp. And three of them, Burke and Wills and one of their friends, set off by themselves and left the camp there to wait for their return. And they told them to leave after a certain number of months. A number of months passed. Burke and Wills and their friend didn't come back. And so the people who were waiting at Cooper's Creek decided to stay a bit longer and longer and longer and then their own supplies were running out and Burke and Wills they had not come back and so they departed the camp they packed up the camp and they left and near one of the trees they dug a hole and left some supplies and buried it and they went to the tree and they dug into the bark dig and they gave the coordinates for where they had to dig and they wrote the date that they'd done this, and they departed. Only hours later, Burke and Wills got back to that tree. They'd missed them only by a couple of hours, and what ended up happening is that they died in the desert, because they couldn't get back. The desert is a dangerous place. But God's people in the Old Testament, the desert, the wilderness, was dangerous, but it had two particular important periods of history associated with it. The first was the experience that they'd had as a nation in the days of Moses, at the beginning of Israel's history. Forty years Israel spent in the wilderness. Why? Well, we find out in the books of Numbers and Deuteronomy. They explain they spent those 40 years in the deserts because they had rebelled against God who had saved them. They'd refused to believe God, refused to obey God. The 40 years in the desert that Israel spent were 40 years spent under God's judgment. God's judgment on a rebellious generation. Now for people who know the history of Israel, the idea of the wilderness years is the idea of being under God's judgment. And that is reinforced in the second period of Israel's time that they 
thought of as being in the wilderness, and that was when they were in the exile. Toward the end of the Old Testament history of Israel, the nation had been repeatedly disobedient to God, they had repeatedly rejected God, and they were expelled from their land into the wilderness, so to speak. And that's how the prophets spoke about their being in exile, using the same kind of language that is taken from their history of when they were in the wilderness in Moses' day. They were there again. They were in another wilderness experience. And again, in the wilderness was to be under the judgment of God. And in a moment, we will see how this comes together in the beginning of the message about Jesus the King. Because something else happened in the desert both in the days of Moses and in the days of the exile. The other thing that happened in both of those periods of time is that God spoke to his people in the desert. He spoke by the mouth of his sent ones, his prophets, his mouthpieces, and he spoke extraordinary promises. The promise of God to the people of Israel in the desert was expressed in a number of different ways and often with very vivid images, but one among them was along these lines that God would one day pour out streams of water in the desert, that God would turn the desert into a rich and fertile land. It is that promise that Mark picks up on in the opening of his biography of Jesus in verses 2 and 3 of Mark's, Mark chapter 1, where he says, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. It's actually a mix of references to parts of the Old Testament from Isaiah, from Exodus and from Malachi. And by putting them all together, Mark puts all of God's promises together into one promise and focuses on Isaiah chapter 40. And the message is, God is coming to people in the desert. And God is coming to lead his people out of the desert, so prepare a way for him. The promise quoted is that God would send a messenger to prepare that way, to prepare a highway. Now, when I was in the desert in Australia every so often, if you had a map, you could find your way to what we would call a billabong. It's an Australian word for a place of still water in the desert. It's a place of life and relief. And what Mark and what does Mark tell us at the beginning of his news about Jesus? Well, he starts telling us about a man named John. You'll see verse 4 begins with, And so, as a consequence of the promises of God in the Old Testament, as a consequence of God's promises, John came with an extraordinary message, and he came to the wilderness. What did he start doing in the wilderness? He came baptizing in the desert. He came performing an action that spoke of water in the desert. And if you have ears to hear it, if you've got the promises of the prophets ringing in your ears, if you've heard about the streams of the desert that had been promised, if you've heard about God pouring out his water in the desert, you'll see something going on here. You'll see the powerful symbolism, if you know the promises of the prophets in the Old Testament. Baptism in the desert, water in the desert, the end to the wilderness years. Now this is all metaphor and symbol because the people of Israel at this time were not literally living in the desert. They'd returned from exile some centuries earlier 
and they were living in the land in places like Jerusalem. But those sensitive to the reality of their situation knew that spiritually, spiritually speaking, they were still in the desert. And politically, the nation was still under the rule of a foreign occupying power, Rome. And this, occupi- this occupation was understood to be a continuing part of God's anger at his people for their rejection of him. And so John the Baptist's message, symbolised by water in the desert, was about repentance, about turning back to God for forgiveness of sins, for an end to the drought, for the judgment of God to be turned into rich, fertile land, to, for the experience of having your sins forgiven. Just look at the response to the message in verse 5. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptised, they were immersed by him in the Jordan River. Hundreds of in-the-desert people, acknowledging their need, confessing their sins and being washed there in the desert. Now, this was an enormous, important moment in the history of the people of Israel and an enormously important moment in the history of the world. For this is what the prophets had been talking about, according to Mark. And to emphasise this, we are told of John's appearance in chapter 1, verse 6 of Mark. John wore clothing made of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. Now, Mark is writing for people who have interest enough in the Old Testament to be able to work out what he's saying about John. If you're familiar with 2 Kings, chapter 1, verse 8, and I know you all are, you will immediately see that John is dressing like Elijah, the prophet Elijah. He came looking like Elijah. And then if you remembered Malachi, chapter 4, verse 5, I know that's right at the front of your mind. You're just about to yell it out, aren't you? you'll realise what he meant. Because Malachi recorded God's promise, See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. So if this is all real, if it's not a con, this is an extraordinarily important moment that Mark is recording. This is the figure that was spoken of by the prophets, this man John coming and immersing people in water in the wilderness. This is the messenger who is coming along to prepare the way for the Lord turning up. The desert is about to be turned into a rich and fertile land. But immediately having recognised the importance of this messenger, John, Mark begins to tell us of his unimportance. Did you notice that in verse 7? And this was his message, this was John's message, after me comes one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. Compared to what is coming, compared with who is coming, this messenger John, this Elijah, is insignificant. He's only preparing the way. Look at how he says what the one coming after him is going to do in verse 8. John says, I baptise you with water, but he will baptise you with the Holy Spirit. He says, my immersing you is just a symbol. It represents the end of the desert years. 
but he is going to bring the reality as he pours out the Holy Spirit of God, immersing people in God's Spirit. Then the desert of being under God's wrath will truly be transformed into a rich fertility of forgiven sins and God's very presence. Now, if that sounds lovely, you're only getting half the picture. Because while it would be wonderful to be part of God's great kingdom where nothing bad exists, remembering that, remember that Israel are in the wilderness because they are part of the something bad. They were supposed to be something different to the other nations, but they weren't. And the idea of being immersed in God's spirit is now understood only positively. But how on earth can it be positive for someone who knows they are an enemy of God? For someone who knows that God's holiness cannot bear anything that is not holy. It cannot bear being near anything tainted by sin. God's holiness would break out against anything that is unholy. Back in the Old Testament, Aaron's sons, who were themselves priests, they tried to approach God in his holiness and were struck dead. Imagine being made of paper and being immersed into lava. That is what being immersed into God's Holy Spirit would be for a person tainted by sin, like me, like you. God's coming is not just a wonderful thing for those who, if you're not his friend, if you're among the sinners. For that kind of person, the idea of being immersed into the Spirit of God is properly a thing of terror. So those who know God's word, who hear God's message, what are they driven to do? Well, they are driven to the wilderness to be washed because they know they're not clean in front of God. The coming of the Spirit, the immersion in the Spirit that Jesus is going to bring is to bring a burning cleansing. Things are cleansed by fire. And what if you are the slag, not the iron? If you're the slag that needs to be burned away, what if you're a sinner? <laughs> Some of you may have heard a phrase, love the sinner, but they hate the, hate the sin. And I get what people are saying when they use that phrase, but I think it can also be unhelpful. Because the one who commits the sin is guilty as a sinner. You cannot separate sin from the sinner as if the devil made me do it. No, you did it. I did it. We did it. We sin. We are all responsible for our own actions. And God holds us responsible for our sin. God's holiness will not bear sin. So what will happen if God turns up among sinners? How on earth are we going to survive God's coming? How are we going to survive the coming immersion in the Holy Spirit? Surely God's coming into the world will be carnage for everyone who is a sinner. Well, that is what should be on our minds as we start reading this opening of Mark's account of Jesus' life. And it's what makes the next bit a huge surprise about a substitute in the wilderness. Look at verse 9. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptised by John in the Jordan. All the other people mentioned by Mark so far have come from Jerusalem and Judea in the south of the country. 
There's only one who comes from the north and is mentioned, from the backwater area of Israel, around Galilee. It's an area generally despised. It's a real nowhere town, Nazareth. Why? Why has he come? Well, we've already been told in the title, haven't we? We've read verse 1. We've already read that he's the Christ, he's the King, he's the Son of God. Although we don't yet fully understood what this means, at, as far as we've come, in this account, we get that little bit. So why does he come and to be baptised by John? Well, it can only be that he came to the desert, to the Jordan River, in order to stand with sinful people. Now, unlike them, Jesus did not confess his sin. But like them, he was baptised. Later on in chapter 10, we read of Jesus speaking about another immersion, another baptism that he's going to have to undergo. In chapter 10 of Mark, he's referring to his death, which in that very chapter, he claims he came to do for others. His coming to be baptised in the desert is in anticipation of this other baptism he is going to undergo. He does it for others. Look at chapter 1, verse 10 of Mark. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Back in Old Testament times, there was a prayer they used to pray. It's recorded in Isaiah chapter 64, verse 1, and it says, To God, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Well, as Jesus is baptised, he sees a vision of the heavens being torn open and the Spirit of God descending on him. Once again, we need to realise what's, what's going to happen. And that's why it's really good to read Mark over and over again. And in preparation for these talks, maybe you could read it through a number of times and really get to know it. And you'll start to see the connections running through. Much later on, as Jesus is dying on the cross, we hear of the temple curtain being torn open, using exactly the same word as is used here. That which had been a barrier between God and his people, representing God's inaccessibility to people who are sinful, representing that God could never truly dwell with humans because of our sinfulness, that curtain is torn open at the point of Jesus' death. And here at the very beginning, there are pointers to the significance of this person, Jesus. Friends, do you long that God would come down and do something about the state of the world? Do you long that God would do something about the state of your life? I wonder if you ever pray a prayer like that Old Testament people used to pray to God saying, Oh, would you tear open the heavens and come down? How long are you going to wait? Do you long that God will not remain remote? Oh, you would rend the heavens and come down. As Jesus came out of the water in the desert, that is exactly what happens. Read on, verse 11. And the voice came from heaven. You are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. 
Well, this is where the difference between Jesus and all those others who came to the Jordan becomes very clear. Because they were all confessing their sins. But as Jesus is baptised, we don't hear his voice confessing his sins. Rather, we hear another voice making it very clear that he has no need to confess his sins at all because he has none. This man is God's own son, loved by God, pleasing to God in every way. The language of the voice echoes Psalm chapter 2 verse 7 where God says to his king, you are my son. It sounds a little bit like Isaiah 42 verse 1 where God calls his servant, my chosen one in whom I delight. What we have here is an announcement. For people whose biggest problem is that they are in the desert of God's judgment. God has done something so that you can be okay with him. There is one man with whom God is pleased. And in him, you too can be made clean. And it has something to do with Jesus being immersed into death as a substitute for you and for me. This substitution idea that Jesus is a perfect representative of God's people is emphasised by what happens next. Look at verse 12. At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. No sooner had the voice from heaven spoken that G- had sp- the voice from heaven spoken, Jesus is driven out by God's Spirit into the wilderness for forty days. Why? Well, the clue is in the forty days. It's a deliberate reminder of the forty years that Israel had spent in the wilderness in the time of Moses. Forty years in the desert for their failure to trust and obey God. But what's Jesus doing there? Well, Mark is presenting us with paradoxes, one after the other. It's something that we're going to discover he keeps doing throughout his account of Jesus' life. Jesus, standing among the ones who confess their sins, he, the sinless one, among the sinners. The one who has no sin is immersed as if he is a sinner in the river, in the same river that Israel entered into the promised land, the Jordan. He is taking on himself a representation of all of Israel. Then the son who is loved and with whom God is well pleased is driven into the desert as Israel had been driven into the desert because of their rebellion. And what happens in the desert to Jesus? Well, he's tempted, he's tested by Satan, just like Israel had been tested in the desert. But Israel failed her test in the desert, and the whole generation died in the desert under God's judgment. But Jesus, despite being with the dangerous wild animals, the desert is a dangerous place, but God kept him safe. He succeeded where Israel failed. Eventually, the time will come for Jesus to go public, beginning to make known his presence and what he's come to do. And do you notice the trigger? Do you notice what the trigger is for Jesus going public? Verse 14, it's the imprisonment of John. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news, the gospel of God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. 
Here we have the message that Jesus proclaims, the news, the gospel, the good news, God's news for the world. Here is the gospel as Jesus proclaimed it at the beginning. What is it? The time has come. The time has been fulfilled. This moment is the turning point of the history of the world. This is the time after which Israel would never be the same again. And it was the time after which the world would never be the same again. Second, the kingdom of God is now. The kingly rule of God has come. Jesus begins his public life announcing the nearness of God's rule because Jesus himself is near. God's rule is near because God's king is near and he will show himself to be the one who speaks and acts with the authority of God himself. And by the end of chapter 1, we see that the kingdom of God is indeed near. Third, repent and believe the good news. The news that Jesus brings calls for a response. It called for a response then and there. And the response is, turn around and believe it. The news calls for a response here and now. Turn around and believe it. And that is how the beginning of the gospel begins. And can I encourage you to read on as we start through. But today, let's understand that Jesus came to people in the desert. The desert of godlessness, the desert of hopelessness, the desert of unforgiven sinfulness. He came to transform the desert into the kingdom of God, a kingdom in which sins are forgiven, in which the Holy Spirit is poured out. And the gospel that began, began like that is still like that. Today, the kingdom of God is near, right on the doorstep. If the king has come, if Jesus has come, there is nothing stopping him from bringing all things to a close. So turn around and believe. Thank you for listening to the recording of the Dublin Bible Talks. You can join us in real time on Wednesdays at 1pm Dublin time on Zoom. bit.ly slash Dublin Bible Talks. That's bit.ly slash Dublin Bible Talks.